The scripture reading today is from Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we, are our, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The scripture we've just read is in your bulletins if you want to keep a finger in that place. But also I'm going to read from Psalm 8. You'll find this in the Pew Bible on page 427, Psalm number 8, beginning at verse 1. This is what the psalmist writes, O Lord, our sovereign King, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, yet out of the mouths of babes and infants, even children have a sense of this glory. You have given a defense for your existence, a bulwark, a defense, because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. They can see your glory, even the children. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, I cannot help but ask, what are humans that you are mindful of them? Mortals, that you care for them, yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our sovereign King, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, in the stillness of this moment, we need to hear your voice through the Holy Scriptures, in and through the words that are now spoken. Breathe by your Spirit, your true word into our lives that we may know life in the abundance for which we were created. Hear this our prayer. Amen. So last Sunday I began a new series of sermons called Contours of Faith. We're going to be following this series through the spring and through the summer, and we're going to be reviewing Christian basics, back to Christian basics over the next few months together. This is really critical to do in our lives from time to time, and especially with that most basic of Christian questions that we have to ask ourselves about God, about the existence of God, and whether or not we believe in the existence of God and what we might respond 
if somebody were to ask us, why in the world do you believe in God? We looked at this question last Sunday, important for ourselves, but important as well as our society grows increasingly secular, in which there are not only people who adamantly do not believe in God, they are atheists, but far more, I think, these days, there is what we might call agnostic indifference. I don't know about God, and I really don't care. I just don't know about God. I'm not sure you can know about God, and I really don't care. Millions of people who are just not that interested in the questions, and there's some reasons for this, and among the main reasons for this atheism or agnostic indifference are the fact that we live in a scientific age, not a religious age. They used to believe that. We can no longer believe that. We live in a scientific age. And then uh, we don't need God. We're too busy for God. I've got all these relationships in my life. I'm busy connecting with other people. I don't have time to connect in any way with God. So what I said last Sunday was this, that strangely, these excuses for some people are really among the main reasons why I actually believe in God. They led me to believe in God years ago and still lead me to believe in God today. Last week, I said from a scientific point of view, and my background is in math and science, it's stunning to me that the universe is orderly and that we have the capability as human beings to, as it were, step outside the universe of which we are a part and explore it and understand it, unravel it and make sense of it. It's even more stunning that we can digitize it that we can turn it into numbers. Everything we see, everything we hear, we can turn into numbers, and in particular into ones and zeros, and feed that into a computer, and voila, out comes the sound, and out comes the visual of the world around about us in a stunning way. So there's this language behind the universe which allows us to replicate the universe in all kinds of different ways. This is so amazing to me, so miraculous to me, that I cannot not believe that there is a brilliant mind that stands behind everything that we see, a mind behind the matter, beautiful and brilliant. And then in terms of relationships and love with which we are so busy, my question is this, why are we so busy with relationships in life? Why does the possession of good relationships always seem to be the foundation of a life well-lived and experienced. Why all the fuss about getting connected, especially with the rise of social media? I'm sure this has been true all throughout history. But with the rise of social media, it's in front of us all the time. I mean, all the time. You know, there are almost 3 billion people who have signed up for Facebook. That's 37% of the world's population. 3 billion people desiring to connect in this kind of a way. Why in the world is that? Or to turn it around the other way, why is there a worldwide epidemic these days, not only of COVID, but of loneliness? In this passion to connect, there are more and more people who actually feel lonely. And this is part of the core of their being, a deep and abiding sadness within their lives. And why is Albert Camus right? And we know it, don't we? that a loveless world is a dead world, he said, and always there comes an hour when one is weary of one's work and of devotion to duty, and all one cares for is a loved face. Why all this connecting and relationships so important in life? For me, the answer came about 40 years ago from popular theologian at the time, Francis Schaeffer, who gave an answer then which still satisfies me today, that behind the scenes, once again, 
there stands a God who is not just infinite power, but who is passionate about relationship, not just a brilliant mind, but an eternal lover for whom we were made, created to be in relationship. And all our hungering for human relationships and intimacy, our passion to connect with social media, to know and to be known, to spill the beans to people we don't even know, and to know others. All of this is a small reflection of the reason for our creation in the first place, to be connected to the one who is infinitely significant, the most significant other of all, stands behind absolutely everything. So that was what we looked at last Sunday. Today, what I want to do is to sort of bring this ethereal down to earth. We did a little bit of that last Sunday, but really to bring the ethereal down to earth, close to home, and right into our lives and our hearts. Let me phrase this week's question like this. It's one thing to believe in God in general. Check the box. Yes, I do. Really important that we think that through. It's one thing to believe even in a God of love. And yes, we may check the box and say, yeah, I believe that God is love. But then we come down to our level and we say, but what about me? Yeah, God in general, God of love, yeah. But what about me? Does God even notice me, a speck, as I said last week, of cosmic dust, let alone love me intimately? That's the main question we'll focus on. And then the second question, if God does, then what? So what? We'll look at the second question just briefly, but the first question is where I want to be mainly this morning. Does God even notice me? This is the question which lies at the heart, at the very center of Psalm 8. What about me? The psalm that I read just as I began the sermon this morning. Let me read again from the first few verses. Paraphrase Psalm 8 in its uh, opening verses. So it goes like this. O Lord, our sovereign God, how majestic is your name in all the earth, yet you have set your glory above the heavens. I mean, the earth is wonderful enough, but when I look up to the sky, it's simply remarkable. And then above the heavens, the dome of the earth, there's more beyond and the ancients believed this too, just as we have discovered there's so much more beyond. It's just absolutely staggering, this psalmist says. And down here on earth in verse 2, even small children get a sense of this. The grandeur of it all can grasp your existence beyond themselves. And in them we find a defense for those who do not believe. Look at the children. Even they know. Even their very presence is a sign of the glory of God. And then verse 3, back up to the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, I am so overwhelmed that I have to ask, what are humans that you, the sovereign, majestic God, are mindful of them? Mortals, that we can actually say you care for them. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this psalm in this way. He says, that the psalmist asks of God, why do you even bother with me? Why do you take a second look our way? Me? I mean, you? Yeah, I believe in you. Love? Yeah, in general. But me? You notice me? Really? This whole idea, this astonishment of the psalmist reminds me of a scene in a great movie that gobbled up all the Oscars uh, just over 10 years ago in 2011, The King's Speech. Some of you may have seen it or remember it. It's worth getting out 
again. More or less true story. It's about a man by the name of Lionel Logue, L-O-G-U-E, an Australian who was living in London before World War II, and he became the king's speech pathologist, King George VI, to help the king with a stammer as he moved into position of royalty and had to speak in public again and again and again, but he had a stammer. And Lionel is the person who is there to help him with this. That part of the story is absolutely true. Lionel does not tell his wife that one of his clients is the King of England. And one day, Myrtle, his wife, arrives home early to find a woman in her dining room slash living room slash kitchen, and it happens to be the Queen of England, who is in her house at that time, helping herself in a very British way to a cup of tea. So she's there, and Myrtle opens the door, and there is this moment of sheer disbelief. She cannot believe this is actually happening in her house. There is awe, and there is wonder, and there is humility. And there is, as I say, disbelief. And then there's a sense of privilege, and then there is this sense this is the truth. This is, in fact, happening. And then the king comes in, so you've got both of them there, the king and queen of the whole of the empire. And it's this marvelous moment, and if you want to look at it, you can not see the whole movie, you can find a clip of it on YouTube. Just put best scene from the king's speech, and you'll get there. Well, that's how the sovereign God of the universe wants it to be with us. For us to permanently have this sense of awe and wonder that God should want to come, leave Buckingham Palace, as it were, and enter into our homes and into our lives in an intimate kind of a way. Fill us with awe and wonder and humility and privilege of this thing that it can't be true, but yes, it is true, and it becomes the bedrock of our lives. God wants us to know this intimacy, coupled with this sense of wonder all the days of our being. But we have to ask ourselves, if this is actually really the truth. Yeah, God out there, God I love you, yeah, and all of that. But God in here, with me, God really knows me? I mean, is this the case? So how can we know this? Well, I just want to share three thoughts today which might draw our attention to the reality of this intimacy that God, the sovereign God of the universe, wants to have with us. And then think just for a moment or two about some of the ramifications of that. So in terms of the background to this kind of intimacy, when we turn to the pages of Scripture, it's important to know that we don't just find this desire for intimacy or the proclamation of this intimacy with God in the New Testament, what we might often call the softer part of the Bible, but we find it in the Old Testament that we often think of as the tougher part of the Bible. In fact, the more you read the Old Testament, you more you find that, in fact, there's plenty of softness and grace in the Old Testament as well, but it's there that this sense of intimacy with God, that this is what God the Creator desires for us, is actually to be seen again and again and again in the book of Psalms from which I read earlier. It's filled with it. Filled with it. This is who God wants to be for you and me, intimate with us. There is no psalm for me, but, which this is spelled out more clearly than Psalm 139. So this is going back thousands of years. And the psalmist in 139 Psalm 139 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path. 
Am I lying down and are acquainted with all my ways? Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Can you feel that touch? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Kind of a Psalm 8 moment. And then later on in the Psalm, for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. It's remarkable. It's intensely intimate, the love of the great God out there descending into my small life right here. So one of the things to keep in mind when we claim that this is the truth is that this is not just about Jesus-y and me sort of stuff. It goes way back in the teaching of Scripture that God longs to be intimately related to his people, the one who made us and knew about our existence from before we even entered this world. The second thing, though, is this, and it does bring us into the time of Jesus and into the New Testament, is that the story of Jesus is fundamentally about God wanting to be with us. The Christmas story is fundamentally about that, and therefore everything after that is fundamentally about what God does, not just about what God says, I want to be close to you, you need to believe this, but I am doing something to enter your realm and your existence. I'm actually going to leave Buckingham Palace and come into your house. That's what the Christmas story is all about. And God does that at great personal cost in what we call the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus on that first Christmas. Think of it this way, the humility of God. I mean, the sheer humility of God to enter the womb of Mary. And Mary is on this bumpy old donkey on this road going down from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And even when they get there, there is no room in the inn. How majestic is your name in all the earth, and this is what God does for you and me. Or think about the risk that God took in becoming not only a baby, but a young child. Entering a world which was as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than our world today. King Herod was around. There are always King Herods around tearing to pieces those who in any way threaten their power or their authority. And this was the case with Herod, who would put together all the, to death all the baby boys in Bethlehem, just because one of them might be a claimant to his throne. And Jesus is one of those in the family, escape and he's safe. But the risk that God went to, to enter our world, to come to us, to be intimately connected to human beings within his creation. So we have the ancient testimony of Scripture on this, that this is what God wants. We have the action of God in the birth of Jesus. And then we have the death of Jesus as well, which points us to the fact that when we say, oh yes, I know that God comes for some people, but not for me. If God knew me, this could never be true for me. The death of Jesus brings us to that person who says, no, not for me. In which God says, yes, for you, whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, this is for you. So God, in entering our world, is willing to suffer and die upon a cross, to face rejection from all kinds of people, seeking intimacy. John's Gospel says he came to his own, but his own received them not. Seeking intimacy, but rejected by his own people, by the religious leaders of the day abandoned by his friends, suffering injustice and torture at the hands of his enemies. 
and then the full blast of hell itself as he carries our sins in his body on the cross. And he speaks from the cross. And among the words he says are these, not only, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's carrying our sins and throwing them away into the depth of the sea. But he then says, Father, forgive them, whoever they are, and especially those who don't believe that you actually want to come and live with them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Apostle Paul expounds on these words in our Gospels, in our chapter in Ephesians, when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. And this has two sides to it. You can't earn the intimacy of God. You can't do anything to deserve it, nor can you do anything to disinherit yourself. Because Jesus bore all of that, that all small talk about I'm so insignificant, it can't be true for me. He took that in his body on the cross and carried it away. This is, this relationship is for all, for everyone. And it is to be powerful within our lives, transformative within our lives. All wonder, disbelief, it can't be true. Amazed that it's true. Yes, it is true. But then what? transformative in our lives. This is the flow of Christian life. Nothing less will do than that transformation. In 2005, Notre Dame professor Christian Smith, sociologist, and his colleagues conducted a study of 3,000 religious teenagers and identified a set of commonly held spiritual beliefs that they labeled moralistic, therapeutic, deism, D-E-I-S-M, deism or deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's moralistic because they found that these kids had every good reason to be good. Be good, go to heaven when you die. It's therapeutic because the goal of life is to feel good about yourself. To feel good about yourself. And it's deistic because, and this is what's really important, the God out there, the God of love out there, and they believed in a God of love out there, really doesn't spend any time interfering with your life. You just go on your old, merry old way until you need God. God is in your hip pocket. Pull God out whenever you need God. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Looks like Christianity, has a Christian veneer on it, has a biblical veneer on it, but it is not what the Bible is speaking about at all. What the Bible is speaking about is an intimate gift of God's grace a relationship with God which enters our world that stuns us that God should be interested in us no matter who we are and then changes us intimately from that moment on. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Like, wow, this incredible gift in my life. What happens next? Not the result of work so that no one may boast. And then verse 10 in our passage. Look at it in your bulletin today. For we are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Not good works that earn the favor of God, but that flow from the grace of God. If God comes to us and we don't deserve it, we cannot earn it. But this is built into the very heart of God. That's where good works fit in as a flow, an outflow of this relationship. How best can I live for you? 
Wow, I've met the girl or boy of my dreams. What do I do next? <laughs> wow. Wow. I've got the job that I've always wanted. Well, you don't just sit back and do nothing. Your life is transformed from that moment on. In 1978, in a drunken stupor, on the night of his high school graduation in Goshen, Indiana, young man by the name of Tracy Bailey, who attended church, was the captain of his wrestling team, and was on the student council. He led his friends to steal a car, break into his school, pick up chairs, throw them through windows, overturn desks, and scatter papers everywhere. The next morning, so he graduates from high school, the next morning he is arrested. And a few weeks later, he is sentenced to five years' imprisonment in the Indiana Youth Center called the IYC. He writes this. He says, Though the IYC was intended for young first-time offenders, it was swollen to double capacity with many older prisoners, some in for robbery, some for murder, some for rape. He's just graduated from high school. The day I arrived, my head was shaved. I was sprayed down for lice and given a prison number. Empty hours became grueling weeks of nothingness. Then one morning I caught a glimpse of someone reflected in the mirror. An awful, sallow face. Greasy hair, drawn ashen skin, dead fish eyes. Who's in here with me, I thought. But then it sank in. It was me. I felt my arrogance drain from me. I knew the deadness I saw in the mirror threatened to reach all the way down through me. I collapsed in the cot and hung my head, not in shame, but in helplessness. And a sudden sense of humility. Then Tracy Bailey realized that actually somebody else was there in the room with him, intimately in the room there with him. He writes, Now, rather than accuse God, I pleaded with God. God, I need help. I'm defeated without you. He writes, I don't know how long I prayed, but I do know that a terrible weight was lifted. And things began to change. Fourteen months later, Tracy was released, was able to get into college, earned a degree in science and math and education, became a teacher. And in 1993, 15 years after his graduation and his imprisonment, he found himself standing in the Rose Garden, the White House, to receive the award as National Teacher of the Year. Grace transformed life with me in that cell, no matter who I am or what I've done. May God give to us a Psalm 8 moment. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are humans that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? It can't be true, but it is. And it's for me. Or Ephesians 2. Let me throw in a name here. For by grace, Tracy Bailey has been saved through faith. And this was not his own doing. It was the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Nor was he disqualified from this because of his works. For Tracy Bailey became what God had made him to be, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be his way of life, and God wants to do that for you and me too. Let's pray. Holy God, fill us with a sense of awe and wonder that never leaves us by the power of your Spirit. And may it not just be a good feeling, 
So may it be a good feeling, but one that transforms us day by day through all eternity. For our eternal joy and your glory. Amen.